The scripture reading for this morning is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 25. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, throughout Galatians, Paul has been uh, contrasting the slavery that comes when a person pursues obedience to the law as the means by which you can be right with God, be accepted by God, contrasting that uh, slavery with the, the freedom that we can enjoy if we look to Christ and his finished work on our behalf and are accepted by God, not based on any merit of our own, but based solely on the merit of Jesus Christ. So slavery on the one hand, slavery to the law as the means of obedience uh, by which we're made right with God versus the freedom that we can enjoy by looking to faith in Christ and his accomplishment on our behalf that we might be accepted by God. Um, That's the freedom that he's been uh, holding out before the readers of Galatians. It's it's a freedom that was very much on the line when it came to the experience of these Christians in Galatia. They had uh, succumbed to false teaching that was telling them that they actually had to look to the law of God uh, in obedience in order to be right, in order to be accepted by God. And again, the point that Paul was making throughout the letter was that that actually is to Put yourself in a form of bondage. Put yourself in slavery all over again. And so in Galatians chapter 5, he drives the point home. Verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And from that point on, he's beginning to talk about this freedom that we have, the, the nature of this freedom that we have. And after today, beginning next week, we'll get into really practical examples, ways in which that freedom is to be lived out in the Christian community, the very things that were lacking in that church in Galatia because of the submission to slavery of of works as a means of righteousness. Now, in verses 1 through 5 of Galatians uh, chapter 5, I should say verses 1 through 6 of Galatians 5, we looked at that two weeks ago, we saw that this freedom that we have in Christ has a vertical dimension, that because of the freedom that we have in Christ, we enjoy um, no condemnation anymore. We're no longer condemned. We're no longer under the law as a means of righteousness, experiencing its condemnation because Christ took that in our place. And we are free then to, to rest in the victory that Christ has won, awaiting his return. 
And then last week, we looked at verses 13 and 15 through 15 and saw that this freedom has a horizontal dimension as well. It impacts the way in which we live with one another, or at least it is meant to. This morning, we consider one final dimension of this freedom uh, that, that Christ has won for us, and that's the dimension or the realm of our inner world. There's a freedom that we're enabled to enjoy even as we battle against sin. See, it if, if, if feels like they can't both be going on at the same time. Paul says so clearly at the very beginning of this passage in verse 16, walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Where's, where's the freedom that, that you're telling me about, Mark? If this passage says anything about freedom in the inner world, what about what Paul says in Romans chapter 7? You know, the very thing I don't want to do, I do. The very thing I do want to do, I don't do. Who will rescue me from this bond of death? Paul cries out at the end of Romans chapter 7. There is a battle that we're waging. There is a battle that is raging within us between the flesh and the spirit. Sin still clings so closely. Uh, the wrong seems oft so strong still, to quote a line from the hymn, um, This is My Father's World. Not just out there in the world, but in here, in our inner world. And yet what Paul is telling us in this passage is that part of what it means to be free now, to be set free in Christ, is that we are now able to follow the Spirit's lead as the Holy Spirit seeks to bear his fruit in us, in that inner world where this very battle is taking place, there is fruit that the Spirit of God who indwells us will bear in us as we follow his lead. Something that we are now free to do that we couldn't have done before. Because we are free to follow the Spirit's lead and fear no condemnation and rest in the Spirit's victory and, and bear His fruit in our lives for, for our good and, and for God's glory and the good of those around us, there is a freedom that we're called to enjoy in here, in our inner world, in our self, even as we fight this battle against sin. So three things we're going to look at this morning from this passage. First, the flesh at work. Paul talks about the works of the flesh. So we're going to talk about the works of the flesh, the flesh at work in our lives. Secondly, we're going to look at the Spirit's war. And then third, we're going to finish up by looking at the believer's walk. So the flesh at work, the Spirit at war, and the believer's walk. But first, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for pouring out your Spirit into our hearts. Holy Spirit, we ask now that you would take this Word, this Word that is living, and especially this portion of it that speaks to us of what your intention is within those who um, look to Christ by faith. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would apply that work in our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So first, the flesh at work. Now, what does Paul mean by the flesh? Let me just remind you of something I said last week. When Paul talks about the flesh, he's not talking about the body. You know, sometimes we think that we get this um, kind of uh, dichotomous way of thinking, that the body is um, 
somehow bad and the soul is now redeemed by God and good and, and salvation is ultimately getting the soul out of the body. That's a, that's a wrong way entirely of thinking. Paul uses a different word whenever he talks about the body. The body's good. It's created by God. It's going to be resurrected one day. The body is good. He, when he's talking about the flesh, he's talking about our sin nature. It's, it's an entirely different word there. He's talking about what we are by nature because of the fall, that every aspect of our person is polluted by sin. Our nature, our very selves are sinful. He'll talk in Ephesians about the old self and the new self to bring this idea in of the fact that if you're a Christian, you're already a new creation, and yet the old self still resides within us. And so there's the battle that's raging within us between the, the, the spirit of God that indwells us and the new creation that he has brought and, and then the flesh, our sin nature that still dwells within us. Now, Paul tells us some things about the, the flesh here in this passage. He tells us four things, actually, that the, the works of the flesh are extensive, the works of the flesh are evident, the works of the flesh end in eternal death, and then fourth, that the works of the flesh flow effortlessly. So let's look at those real quick. First, the works of the flesh are extensive. Take a look at verse 19. <clears throat> Paul says there, Now the works of the flesh are evident, and then he goes on, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. So there are three examples of flesh work that fall under the category of sexual sins. And then he goes on to talk about what we could call religious sins in verse 20, idolatry and sorcery, ways of, of connecting with God apart from the means of God. Then he goes on to talk about relational sins in verses 20 and the first part of verse 21. He speaks first of enmity, strife, jealousy, and fits of anger, all of which are destructive attitudes of the heart. And then he goes on to talk about the bitter fruit of those destructive attitudes in relationship, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Then he goes on to talk about sins of excess. He talks about drunkenness and orgies. And then he goes on and says, just kind of a catch-all phrase, and things like these. In other words, there's more examples of the works of the flesh that could be listed than what you have even here. The works of the flesh are extensive. The works of the flesh, Paul says, are evident. Look back again at the first part of verse 19. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. It's not just a matter of, okay, we see these things and we know that these things are, are, are not of God and are, are instead of sin and of the flesh. It's also just and fundamentally wherever you see, because again, remember the catch-all phrase and things such as these. So how does the evidence bear out? Wherever, wherever something is being pursued for the sake of self and not for the sake of God's glory and, and out of God's glory, the good of others, then you know that works of the flesh are present. In other words, self-serving actions, attitudes, behaviors, desires, intentions, self-serving things are themselves the evidence of the reality and the works of the flesh. Paul says in verse 21 that those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And you, you read that and you think, oh my gosh, I envy sometimes. So does that mean I'm lost? It's important to remember that the word that is translated do here 
is a word that means have a pattern of doing these things. Have a pattern of doing these things, of this way of living. It's the same idea that you get in Psalm 1, where the psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, if this is your ingrained way of life to which you are committed and have no new desire to live you know, in an alternate way, in a way that's glorifying to God, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The works of the flesh are evident. The works of the flesh are extensive. They end in eternal death. And then I think Paul's hinting at the fact that they just flow effortlessly. Take a look at verse 19. Paul says in verse 19, he speaks of them as the works of the flesh. But then jump back up to verse 17, where he talks about the desires of the flesh. Now, we've all heard the phrase, perhaps you haven't, but maybe you've heard the phrase, you know, when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life, right? If you love what you do, you've never worked a day in your life if you love your job. Well, that's how our sin nature feels. We will gladly pursue whatever we desire. We may work hard to get it, but it doesn't feel like we're working all that hard. Our, our energy, our effort will always flow toward the object of our desires. The desire of our sin nature is self-gratification. It's opposition to God. It's living for ourselves, living our own way. And even though we may work hard at living that way, it doesn't feel like hard work because we're just following the path of our sinful desires. Now, you may say, tell me about it. <laughs> you're, not, you're not telling me anything I don't already know. Of course, I understand that, that the, the path of least resistance for my sin nature is sin. But let me remind you that it wasn't always that way. In order to really appreciate what the Spirit of God is doing within us, just remember with me for a second that once upon a time, Adam and Eve, before they sinned, their path of least resistance was obedience to God. It was loving God. There was no sin nature. What flowed effortlessly, naturally for them, was actually loving God and loving one another, obeying Him. They had to go against their nature in order to sin. They did sin. And then after that, everyone's nature, from that point on, the desires flowed effortlessly towards sin and not toward obedience to God. Now, what we will one day be are those who, greater than ever Adam and Eve ever were, we will be those whose desires flow effortlessly toward obeying God, toward loving Him, toward serving Him, toward loving those around us, without the potential even for sin. That day's coming in glory. Until then, what the Spirit of God is doing in us is warring against that sinful nature within us that has still that path of least resistance towards sin, but giving us a new desire, working in us a new impulse so that the flow of our desires are now toward obedience to God, loving Him and loving other people for God's sake and for their sake and not for our own. That's the 
war that's going on within us. That's the tension that we now feel. We didn't feel that tension before we were Christians. Now, we may have felt because our, you know, our parents raised us right and we lived in a society that could, of course, identify between right and wrong to some degree, no matter how hard society tries to set aside right and wrong. But the, but the impulse to, to, to make the right choice, to do the right thing, to live a good life out of a desire to glorify God wasn't there prior to the work of God in our hearts to call us to himself. But now we feel this tension between desiring to live for God and still desiring to live for self. Now, if I were to ask you, why do you feel that way? If you were to answer the way I'm about to answer alone, if you were only to say what I'm about to say, you'd be saying something true but insufficient. And, and, and I'd say deadly. If your answer to me is this, I, I feel this tension and I'm trying to resolve this tension because now that I'm a Christian, I know how I'm supposed to live. I know I'm not supposed to live the way I used to and at times very strongly still want to. So now I've got to fight this battle that, that once upon a time I wasn't even aware of. I've got to stop living the way I used to live and start living more for Jesus. Now that is true, but if that's all you're clinging to, then you're falling right back into the lie, um, that, 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 that lie that the Galatians succumbed to through the false teachers. Yeah, you're right. You do need to live differently. Do this and God will accept you. Now again, what I just said is exactly the way we ought to be thinking, but if that's all we're doing is saying, this is what I must do, then we're leaving aside something that Paul is telling us in this passage has already been done for us. And so we turn secondly then to what Paul says about the spirit at war. The spirit at war. Look back with me at verses 16 through 18. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Just from reminders real quick, we give a whole series to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. But let's just do, you know, three minutes. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is a person, not a force. It is never appropriate to refer to the Holy Spirit as it any more than it would be appropriate to refer to any of you as it. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is God. He is the third person of the Trinity. He's not incarnate like the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. He, like the Father, is spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in you. If you are a Christian, the third person of the Trinity, the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1, asking a question, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? There he's, he's telling us, we receive the Spirit of God by faith in Jesus Christ. In Galatians 4, 6, Paul says, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Holy Spirit is God's gift to us as we look to Christ 
in faith. Paul in Romans 5, 5 says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. In other words, the God gave the Holy Spirit that we might know his love. And Paul's telling us in this passage back here in Galatians 5, and specifically in verse 18, that the Holy Spirit is given to lead us. Verse 18 again, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. That verb led there is an active verb. It points to the active personal involvement of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. Did you hear me say that? The active personal involvement of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God in the life of the believer. And the fact that it's present tense means that this is an ongoing activity. This isn't a one and done. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God, he is actively involved in your life. So let's talk about this war and the Spirit's victory. The, the reason why we have these new desires within us is not because, well, now I'm going to church and I'm reading my Bible and I know the right way to live and, and I need to stop living the way I used to live. That's true, but that's not foundational. If that's all you're looking to is what I now know I need to do and what I now know I need to stop doing, if that's all you're doing, you're completely short-circuiting, trying to do an end around the work of God in your heart in order to accomplish something that you can never accomplish on your own. Because the Spirit of God lives in us, we have new desires. That's why. Look look back again at verse uh, 16 and 17. I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. I love the ambiguity of that last phrase. Because when you're listening to your sin nature, the Spirit of God is working in you to keep you from doing the thing that you want to do, which is sin. And yet when you're seeking to keep in step with the Spirit, to follow the Spirit's leading, the the sin nature within you is warring within you to try to keep you from doing what the Spirit of God wants you to do. But the Spirit of God has the victory. Paul guarantees it in verse 16. When Paul says in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, he's saying something that in the Greek would sound more like this if we were going to literally translate the emphasis that he's trying to get across. The the emphasis with which Paul writes here could come across like this. If you walk by the Spirit... You will, in no way, not a chance, absolutely not, fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's how adamantly Paul is saying that if you will simply follow what the Spirit of God is doing in you, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Yes, there's a, there's a battle, there's a tension, there's an impulse to go in the way of the flesh and not the way of the Spirit. But Paul is saying if you will just look to the Spirit of God, you will not gratify the flesh. There's no stalemate between the flesh and the spirit. There's no question who has the upper hand. The spirit of God is the victor. And oh, by the way, the spirit of God is God. Follow him, yield to him, 
and you will triumph over the flesh, Paul says. But he goes on to say, you will also bear the fruit of the Spirit in you. Take a look at verses 22 and 23, familiar verses for many of us, but let me read them again. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, commentators are a little bit divided. When Paul, you saw the word fruit is singular. It doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit. It says the fruit singular of the Spirit. And commentators will say, well, that's fruit. Like, you know, they're all, the fruit of the Spirit is all these things together. So that you couldn't separate them out and say, you know, there's the fruit of love and the fruit of joy and the fruit of patience. It's just all together a fruit that has all these different dimensions. Others would say, no, the fruit of the Spirit is love and everything that follows is what love looks like in action. Or another way to put it is that if, if uh, love were a light and you were to pass love through the prism of a redeemed, that prison, prism, of a redeemed heart, what would, what would come out the other side, what would be refracted is joy, peace, patience, kindness, just gentleness, and the like. That that's what love looks like when it passes through, you know, the fruit of the Spirit of God, that love, when it passes through the redeemed heart, refracts into all those different kinds of things. I'm, I'm more there than I am on the, the other side of things. For this reason, Jesus emphasizes that the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul, back up in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, said the whole law is fulfilled in the law to love. And so I think what Paul is emphasizing here is that the singular fruit of love is what the Spirit of God accomplishes in us, enables us to bear, so that in our lives what you see is, yes, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and the like. But the Spirit has the victory. How then shall we live? And we turn third and finally to the believer's walk. The believer's walk. How, how do we live in light of this truth? And Paul tells us in verse 16, not to gratify the desires of the flesh. And then in 16, and again in verse 25, he says, walk or keep in step with the Spirit. So again, back to verse 16. Let's just look at these two key words, gratify and desire. In verse 16, Paul says, do not desi- uh, gratify the desires of the flesh. That word, uh, just, just don't, let me say this. Don't forget that when it comes to desire, desire is not inherently a bad thing. See, that's the other mistake we make is we think if I'm going to be a Christian now, I shouldn't want anything. I shouldn't desire anything. The problem is when we desire that which is bad or sinful or evil, or we over-desire that which is good. We, we elevate to a place above God good things. We make them ultimate things. And then even there, our desire is out of whack in overdrive in a way that's destructive. And so again, the desires of the flesh can be even for good things that we've elevate, elevated to God things. And Paul says, don't gratify these things. That verb, that word gratify is a verb. It means to carry out, to accomplish, to fulfill. In other words, what Paul is saying is don't take orders from the flesh. Last week, we talked about the beachhead that we give, the opportunity to the flesh, we give it like a beachhead. 
for attack. What Paul's saying here is don't listen to the commanding officer on the beachhead. Don't, don't listen. Don't obey its commands. Instead, Paul says, walk in verse 16, walk by the Spirit. And then in verse 25, he says, keep in step with the Spirit. That verb walk has the idea of the pattern of conduct of a one's life. This is the way in which you live. And what Paul is saying when he talks about the the intimate involvement of the Spirit of God, the ongoing leading and presence, what he's saying there is the Holy Spirit is given to direct you, the Holy Spirit is given to empower you, and so now walk in that way. But then he goes even stronger in verse 25 when he says, keep in step with the Spirit. It's a different verb there. It's not the same word that's translated walk. The word keep in step there means to walk in line behind a leader. So don't listen to the commanding officer of the flesh whenever you give it a beachhead in your heart. Instead, listen to the commanding officer. Follow in the steps of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says in verse 25, this can happen not if, but since we live by the Spirit. It's a a bit of a rhetorical type of question. It's a since you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Back in verse 24, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Before we do anything to crucify our flesh, to, to kill our sin nature, we have already been crucified with Christ as Christians. Paul saw that back in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To be a Christian is to be united to Christ. It is to have your flesh, in a sense, already crucified with him. This is new creation type stuff that's going on. Even as you seek to put to death that remaining flesh that dwells in you. You are made alive in Christ. You do live by the Spirit. This is not something that will hopefully one day be. This is something that is absolutely true now. Yes, the desires of the flesh wage war against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit wage war against the flesh. What are the desires of the Spirit of God in you? The Holy Spirit's given always to point to Jesus. Sinclair Ferguson in his book on the Holy Spirit refers to the Holy Spirit as the shy person of the Trinity. Because the Holy Spirit doesn't want to draw attention to himself. The Holy Spirit always wants to direct our gaze to Jesus. It's there in the face of Christ that we see the gospel, the good news. It's it's there that we see the glory of God. It's there that we're reminded of the love of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is given, remember, out of love for God, that we might know the love of God, we love because he first loved us. The Spirit of God is not given to us that we might have magical, mystical experiences. The Spirit of God is given to us that we might love Jesus like the Spirit of God loves Jesus. That love might grow in our heart for God and for others. That we might then live the kind of life that Jesus lived. A life of 
joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, all the fruit of the Spirit in that sense, evident in the life of Christ, the Spirit of God seeking to work in us. So yes, the flesh wages war within us. Yes, we have to engage in that battle. We must work out what God is working in. To look to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And so it is absolutely true that we must say, you know what? Before I was a Christian, I did whatever I wanted. But now that I'm a Christian, I know how God's calling me to live. And I must choose daily to take up my cross and follow Jesus. That is true. That will never be not true. But if all that's, if that's all you got, you're missing the gospel. Don't miss the reality of what the third person of the Trinity is seeking to do in you as you keep in step with him. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we're thankful for the gift of your spirit. Holy Spirit, we thank you that as we come before the word of God, it's there that we experience your transforming work in our lives. It's there before your word, as your word is open before us, as we're taking it in, as we're deliberately choosing to read our Bibles and and open ourselves up to the work that you want to do in us as we do so, that we keep in step with you, that we grow in our love for Jesus and have our gaze more directly set upon him as you are seeking to do in us. Holy Spirit, we thank you that it's your desire in us that will win the day. Help us to keep in step, to follow in your steps as we fix our eyes on Jesus, which is just what you would have us do. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.